All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. John Calvin once said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God. We owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God. When we come to gather around God's Word, this is God speaking to us, all right? This isn't just what God said 2,000 years ago to a group of people you're never going to meet. This is God speaking to us today. And so when we gather around his word, it is, it is without doubt the holiest moment of our week because corporately, knowing that Jesus gathers, gathers with us when two or more are gathered together, we then gather around his word. And so let's attend to it now, verse 35 through to verse 37. <clears throat> and as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. Your word speaks to us. And so, Lord, would your word speak to us today? Lord, would we not just go through the motions of hearing a preacher preach and wondering what we could do afterwards? Would we still our souls? Would we pause our busy, distracted lives so that we can be addressed by you? Lord, speak to us, we pray. Amen. You know, one of my favorite programs when I used to live in the United Kingdom was Antiques Roadshow. I did once see that it was on here as well. I think it was on Seven Mate or something random. And I love it. And I watched it in honor of my... UK heritage. I used to love the Antiques Roadshow. Emma hated the Antiques Roadshow. Um, she didn't like it in any way, but as soon as she went out, I put the Antiques Roadshow on. I just liked it. I, and, and the Antiques Roadshow, what people would do is they would bring in different things that they would have lying around the house that they're wondering if they might be worth anything at all. And then they would have them valued. And they were my favorite bits by a long way. Particularly when somebody thought, when somebody came in, they said, oh yes, this has been in the family hundreds of years. And they thought that it was going to be worth like millions of pounds. And then they would find out at the end that was a fake. I used to love that. That was the best. No, sorry, it's a fraud. Um, they, they were just some of my favorite bits. Um, different people would bring you different things. Sometimes it would just be, man, that's rare, that's entertaining. But other times people would bring in things that were really worth a lot of money. I remember one particular episode where a couple came in from Birmingham. They were clearly doing it tough as a family. They were a working class family. They were by worldly standards in, in poverty. And they walk in with a very large blue and white vase, 26 inches high. And as soon as they walk in with it, this couple, the porcelain expert goes running over and he's got eyes like popping out of his head. So he sits them down, the cameras go on them. And he starts to talk to them about, what, what, what do you do with this vase? What do you know about this vase? Tell me, why did you bring it in today? And they explain that they've been given this vase in 1978 by their auntie Flo. It was passed down through the family. Um, and, and it was quite large, 26 inches. So they used it as a doorstop for their front door. <laughs> and occasionally the kids would drag it out and they'd use it as a goalpost. <laughs> they'd actually drag this doorstop out, use it as a goalpost. And the guy, the porcelain expert, has just got eyes popping out his head going, what, what, oh, okay. And he says, listen, do you know anything about this vase? And they said, no, nothing apart from that Auntie Flo gave it to us in 1978. And he explains that, listen, what you've been given is a rare 18th century artifact. And it's from the Chinese Emperor Quinlong dynasty. In the late 1700s, this would have been made in his kiln in China, and it would have been used in his summer palace. They can't believe it. 
They're like, man, we just use this as a doorstop. So they said, well, how much would it be worth? He said, well, I wouldn't suggest using it as a doorstop anymore or a goalpost for your kids. It's valued at around $1.2 million. (laughs) That's an expensive doorstop. This couple had had this great treasure standing at their door for years, yet they had no clue. For 20 years of their life, they'd been walking past this doorstop, walking past it, letting the kids play with it, throwing things in it. They had no idea that it was such a great treasure standing right at their doors. And that scene, without question, bears an uncanny resemblance to the scene that we have before us today in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. Because here in this passage, we see scribes and Pharisees and Herodians and a great throng around them with the greatest treasure of all, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet they have no clue. They simply cannot see the treasure that stands at the doorway to the temple this day. But he wants, to have the, he wants them to have a clue. He wants them to see him for who he is. Hence, this scene. Well, I have two points for us today then that I trust will help us. Number one, the question for them. I want us to examine the story, see what actually did take place here 2,000 years ago. I want us to feel as if we were actually there so that we can experience it together and live in it together. And then, I want us to look, number two, at the question for us. Martin Luther, as I've said many times, says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Listen, I've said that on several different occasions, but I'm going to keep saying it until we believe it as a church. (laughs) I'm going to keep banging on about it until we realize, man, this is incredible. When we open this together as a local church, when we open this in our own homes, God is addressing us. This word runs after us. It has hands, it lays hold of us. It has a mouth, it speaks to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, listen, that the man of God may be complete. What a statement. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, we gather on a Sunday morning and we gather around this text and we go, oh, this is so interesting. Look at all these interesting things that we can look in on. And yet sometimes we fail to realize is all along this text is looking at us. It's asking us questions. It's asking us to consider things in light of it. God is addressing us from these texts. So a question for them, and then a question for us. Number one, then, the question for them. As we will be, I trust, well aware by now, this is the Tuesday before Jesus dies. Just yesterday, the Monday before he dies on the Friday, on the Monday he has cleansed the temple. Zeal for his father's house has consumed him. He's aware that the temple, the great temple, the place where for hundreds of years, symbolically God had dwelt with his people, where people would come and worship him, It had been turned into a den of robbers. And so he literally drives people out. He begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and stops people from carrying anything through the temple. They're just using it as a marketplace. And he's like, no, this this is a place of worship to the Lord. No one dares say anything to him that day. They just lock on in astonishment. But on this day, this Tuesday, Jesus once again arrives at the temple and the religious elite come out to greet him in force. The religious elite confront him, they challenge him, and they question him. First up then is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
as they questioned him about his authority, effectively saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? I mean, imagine the scene. They're all there in their white gowns around the edge of the temple courts. Jesus is probably most likely still on his way up the steps. They're not even letting him finish. He's right there. We're all gathered around him. Who do you think you are? How dare you? And what authority do you come into our temple and do these things? Then comes the Pharisees and the Herodians. They start to question Jesus about taxes. They seek to trap him. They seek to ridicule him, in effect, in front of the crowd with the question of the day. Should we give anything to Caesar? Seeking to trap him, thinking if he says yes, everybody's going to leave him because they're aware that this occupation of their city and their nation is somehow wrong. But if he says no, they'll probably take him even now and try and overthrow the Romans then. And he says yes and no. (laughs) Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar, but give to God that which is God's. And then the Sadducees come after him with a question about the resurrection. They seek to ridicule and humiliate Jesus in front of the crowds. And yet Jesus answers them all with wisdom and authority and skill to the point where we read in verse 34b, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Oh, you bet your life they didn't dare ask him any more questions. They sought to throw him under the bus. In effect, he's thrown them under the bus. He's helped them see what you're saying is stupid. What do you mean by what authority? Oh, the fact that I'm the king of kings and lord of lords, that helps. Taxes? Yeah, we should give that to Caesar. But understand what is God's God's because he's ultimately in control. The resurrection, what are you even talking about? We won't be married in heaven. We'll ultimately be all married to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to the great bridegroom. And they didn't dare ask him any more questions. They're aware, we we can't respond to this. Jesus has, in effect, already now silenced his opponents. And yet notice, Jesus isn't done with them yet. It would appear that he continues now to walk up the steps and he isn't done with them yet because now he has a question for them. They're all still there. The crowds are still looking on. Scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians. And Jesus is eyeballing the scribes because he has a question for them. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, The scholars and scribes may have been finished with all their questions for Jesus, But Jesus still had one last question for them. Yet it was really more like a riddle. And its answer unlocks the mystery at the very heart of the universe. And so it does. Their questioning of him has finished. Now he has a question for them. He has something he wants to address them with, really more of a riddle And it's a question and riddle that really does unlock the question at the very heart of the universe. And so with the scribes in a row before him, with the throng behind him, the great multitude listening on, Jesus has a question for them about the Messiah. In particular, a question about the identity and nature of the Messiah, the answer to which unlocks the very mystery of the heart of the universe. Now, this is not a morning to have a rest. Otherwise, I'm going to be five minutes in and you are going to go, what? You're going to have to follow with me and stay with me because this is a riddle, okay? So when when you're studying a riddle, you can't just go, oh, I'm bored, we'll do something else. You are going to have no clue what's going on. But If you pay attention, you will discover that in here is the mystery that unlocks the universe. It's profound. Look with me at verse 35 as the question begins. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can can you, yeah, you, or you guys in your white gowns before me today, standing in the temple courts with the crowds looking on, how can you say that the Christ is the son of David? of David. So the Savior begins by asking a question 
that contains within it a statement that will actually be common knowledge and common understanding of the day. Namely, that the Christ, which is simply another word for Messiah, would be David's son. The one that God has promised to send from history past would come literally through the bloodline of David himself, King David himself. Now, this was a fact. This is something that was taught all the way through the Old Testament. So when you examine Old Testament scriptures, you see that, yes, indeed, the Messiah, the one promised to come, will come through the bloodline of David. So 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. Let's do what God told David. God told King David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Someone to come after you, your bloodline. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isn't that profound? Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a child, somebody from his bloodline. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteous. It'd be common understanding then, in this period of time, that the Messiah to come, the Christ, would come through the bloodline of David himself. That would be common knowledge and common understanding. And the scribes then appropriately and accurately taught this. So Jesus isn't questioning them here in terms of, oh, I don't think you're right in what you're saying. He's actually going to be commending them in this. You've taught this. They have accurately and appropriately taught that the Messiah to come is going to be from the bloodline of David. Jesus himself is from the bloodline of David. Their teaching is appropriate. Their teaching is accurate. And because of that, the Jews were already now appropriately awaiting a son of David. So just prior to Jesus entering Jerusalem, what happened? Blind Bartimaeus happened. Blind Bartimaeus is aware that one Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and what does he say? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's aware. We're waiting one to come. I wonder if it's you. So Jesus, son of David, you, the Messiah who's come through the bloodline of David, have mercy on me. If this is you, help me. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem... On the back of a donkey, the crowd welcomed him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They haven't got a clue who he is. They do this to all the different pilgrims that come passing through. But they're speaking truth. This is the Passover. There is fervor in the land at this time. There is excitement in the land at this time. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's singing about it. Jesus is not then commenting on their accuracy. In effect, through this question, he's saying, listen, scribes, you've taught that right. It is accurate that the Messiah to come will be a son of David. But here's the point. It's accurate, but it's not adequate. It's true, but there's more. It's accurate, but it is not enough. There's more. 
about Jesus that they don't realize. There's more about this Messiah that they simply haven't understood yet. And so when it comes to what the Messiah will do, he's already been explaining to them about that. Explaining to them that their understanding of what the Messiah will do is so different to what he will do. The thinking in the time under this nation of Israel, their thinking is physical. And so they are waiting then for a triumphant warrior king to come who will lead them both militarily and politically in the liberation and restoration of Israel. That's what they're waiting for. And they're wondering, maybe it's you. So when James and John are saying, hey, when you come into your kingdom, meaning the temple in Israel, can I sit at your right? Can I sit at your left? They're thinking, this is awesome. When you become like the king and you start throwing the Romans out militarily and politically, can I sit at your right and your left? They haven't got a clue what's going on. But that was the common understanding of the day when it came to the Messiah. They thought that they were waiting for one who would throw the Romans out, take the nation again, from which they would start to rule the world again, centered around the temple. Simple. Wrong. Jesus has already explained to them time again, the Messiah hasn't come to crush your enemies. He hasn't come to crush the Romans. He's come to be crushed by the Romans. Your Messiah hasn't come to to lead you in a revolt. The Messiah has come to lay his life down as a ransom for many. Not just for you, but for all the world. They simply don't get it. Their understanding is accurate, but not adequate and when it comes to the nature and identity of the Messiah in particular they are accurate he is going to be a son of David but it is not adequate what they're saying there's so much more that's what he wants them to get so he continues in verse 36 David himself in the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? It's a riddle. It's a riddle to help them see your understanding of the Messiah is accurate, but it's not adequate. It is true that he's going to be a son of David, but there is more for him. And so Jesus, in a desire to help them see that, to see that the Messiah would be so much more than just the son of David, takes them here to Psalm 110, verse 1. That's where that's quoted from. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's come from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, everybody in attendance, you have to understand this, you have to get in the zone. Everybody in attendance, all those scribes, all the Pharisees, all the crowd, they knew full well and believed that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. That of old, when that was written hundreds of years before, it pointed to the Messiah to come. It told us about the Messiah. told us about what he was going to be like and his reign. Everybody in agreement would be standing there going, oh yeah, it is. That's a messianic psalm. It's talking about this Christ, the Messiah to come. Jesus knows that. That's why he's telling them that. He's preaching the Old Testament to them and helping them see, you see it, but you don't get it. So he starts to unpack it with them. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. I love that. Jesus deliberately prefaces this citation by reminding his listeners that David himself, the author of Psalm 110, was divinely inspired. Before doing anything else. He wants to help them see, hey guys, get, get out your Old Testaments. Okay, sweet, good. Um, right, well, just, just so we're on the same page. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, right? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, right. They understood that the Old Testament was God-breathed. They understood that when somebody was gathered around the Old Testament, they weren't just the words of a mere man, although that was his authorship. Those words were inspired by God. They were breathed out by God. So all these scribes and all the crowds would have gone, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. 
The author was David, and he himself was being inspired by the Holy Spirit, God himself, in this moment. They're all nodding. They're tracking with Jesus. It's going well. So then he says this to them. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This would always been a conundrum for them. See, in the Greek and in the English, you're thinking about this in this moment, thinking, what? It, I, I just don't get it. The Lord said to my Lord, is that the same person? What is that? In the Greek and the English, that word Lord is translated the same, Lord. But in the Hebrew, which Psalm 110 was written in, they're two different words. Very different words. So here's what is actually written in the Hebrew. In Psalm 110, in the original, it actually says, The Lord. Capital letters, L-O-R-D. The word Yahweh, Jehovah. The Lord, it is a reference to the great I Am. The Lord, the great I Am, the one who spoke from the burning bush. The one who was and is and is to come. The ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords. The emperor beyond the sea. The Lord, the great King of all, said to my Lord, different word, Adonai. The word Adonai means Lord or Master. It is a specific reference to Messiah. So what he's saying is, David said, the Lord, the great I am, the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords, said to my Lord, my king, my lord, my master. They're all tracking at this point. And this is where the riddle concludes. Verse 37. David himself calls him lord, Adonai, master, messiah. So how is he his son? Profound. Genius. They're all tracking, all the scribes are going, yes, yes. At this point, they go, because what he's telling them there is profound. It is breathtaking. Because what he's trying to help them see there is, though the Messiah will clearly be the son of David, who will clearly come through the bloodline of King David himself, he will literally come through the very blood of King David, he will not only be the son of David, he will also be the son of God. Because David himself knew a child would come through him who would ultimately be the Messiah, the Lord, the Master, the King. David himself calls him Adonai. Why would he do that if it's just his son? And the Messiah that we read about in Psalm 110 as you extrapolate it around all of the chapter, it could not be just a mere human man. Because the Messiah, the Adonai, that is preached about in Psalm 110 is one who Yahweh will send forth, one who the great I Am will send forth himself, one who will be a royal priest forever, never die, never didn't exist by the order of Melchizedek, one who will execute judgment among the nations, one to whom every knee will one day bow, even his enemies. For Yahweh himself will make them a footstool before him. Psalm 110 could not be just a human being because he's a wonderful counselor, an everlasting God. He, he's the great I am. So Jesus, as he exposits the Old Testament to the scribes and the crowds this day, is saying, guys, you simply don't get it. Your understanding that the Messiah is to be a son of David is accurate. But it's not adequate. Because the Messiah is not just going to be a son of David. The Messiah will be a son of God. And David himself knew it. He's not arguing from nowhere. He's arguing from their texts that are in front of their faces right now. Say, read your Bibles. This is the case. And it's profound. And my friends, all along, I submit to you, he's been doing it because he wants to help them see this one to come will be a son of David and he will be a son of God. 
He will be through the bloodline of David, and he will descend from God on high as well. And the reason why he wants them to see it is because he is screaming, albeit silently in this moment, that I am he. What do you think I've been doing all this time? I've been preaching messages, and you yourselves in the crowd have said, man, he preaches with such authority. You yourselves have observed how I have fulfilled in my life prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. I've even come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, as prophesied by Zechariah, that the king would come on the back of a donkey. All these miracles, all these healings, all these different things I've been doing, all these works, they're not just the works of a mere man, they're the works of God himself. This Messiah you're waiting for is not a mere man, he's the Son of God. I am he. trying to help him see even now who he is. But they don't get it. They simply can't see it. See verse 37, verse B, it says, And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, that is momentarily encouraging, isn't it? I mean, certainly when I read it, I thought, oh, this is awesome. People become Christians, or they're pretty happy about it. I don't know what's going on. We have to understand the context of Mark chapter 12, and as soon as you turn over the page to Mark chapter 13 and then 14, you realize it's these very same people that in a few days' time will be shouting, crucify him! They don't get it. They hear him gladly, because these scribes are so darn pompous, and they're aware in this moment, <laughs> Jesus made him look pretty stupid. That's why they heard him gladly. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, The teacher that never attended the right schools confounds the greatest theologians of the land. I love it. It's a bit like some guy who's never been to school going up to some professor at Knox College, making him look stupid and all the students going, <laughs> that's what's going on here. They're laughing because this guy who seems to have never really been to school is taking on all these guys, these scribes in white, in white, in white jackets and bodies. He's taking them all on and he's helping them see you are wrong. So the great throng heard him gladly, but they're not believing in him. And the scribes, well, they don't respond either. Because even now they are looking for a betrayer. And in two days they'll find one. One Judas Iscariot. And through him, they'll have Jesus killed. Jesus is trying to help them see who he is. But they simply don't see it. For these scribes and for this specific crowd in this moment, they simply don't see it. They simply could not see the incredible treasure that was standing right at their door. They could have touched him. This is him. This is the one for centuries they'd been waiting for. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one who was born to a virgin Mary, who is the son of David, but also the son of God. They should have been falling to their knees even now as they're standing in the temple realizing, oh, it's you! You're the one this all points to! Oh Lord, forgive us! But they don't. Just like that couple from Birmingham with the vase. They have no clue who stands at their door today. And they don't respond at all. But my friends, here's the reality. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. lays hold of me. Here's the question that this has been asking of us all along. The scribes and the crowds on this day never saw it. 
Never saw who he really was as King of kings and Lord of lords. Who he really was as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. They never saw it. But the question this is asking you is will you see it? Will you? Will you? And do you see Jesus Christ of Nazareth for who he really is? Will you and do you see the treasure that stands right at your door? Not just for us corporately, but for each and every individual in the room. Do you see it? And that's then my second point. Number two, the question for us. See, maybe you're here today and right now, presently in your life, you really do know him to be the treasure he is. If, you, that, if that's you, that's awesome. And it is a pleasure and a privilege to preach to you each and every week of my life. It is a privilege and a pleasure to, to preach to you so that you may ever increasingly delight in the treasure that is Jesus Christ. I love it. I love it when I'm chatting to people and they say, listen, I, I saw it. I, I saw who Jesus is. And man, isn't he amazing? You think, yes, yes, he is. That's all I want to do in my life. All I want to do in my life. Like the disciple Andrew that just spent his time saying, hey, I met a man that can change your life. Let me introduce you. That's all I am. At best, I'm an introducer. If you presently see Jesus for who he is as the treasure, and these moments are just moments where you fall in love with Jesus all over again, where you see him as he is, as wise and authoritative and as king of kings and lord of lords. If you see him, even now, even now, he's on the way to Calvary for me. Oh Lord, I love you. That's you when what a joy to preach to you. And yet as I waited on the Lord this week, I believe there was two other sets of people specifically the Lord laid on my heart to seek to address from this text this morning. Because the Bible is alive. Jesus is alive. He wants to encounter his people. He wants to minister to people. See, maybe you're here today then as the first group of people. The first group of people that I really felt the Lord put on my heart is those who really don't know him or recognize him as a treasure at all. In fact, throughout most of the morning as I've talked, as far as you're concerned, I may as well have been speaking French. What do you mean treasure? Treasure? Jesus, he's just this guy that, I don't know, meant to have lived 2,000 years ago, might have been a good teacher, I think, from what I've heard, sounded like a really lovely bloke. Miracles, Mm, not too sure about that, not sure if I can believe that. Maybe he's a prophet. Yeah, I'll go with that. That's cool. Treasure? No. H- how? Maybe you're just like that couple from Birmingham with the vase. Jesus has been standing at the doorway of your life for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. And you walk past him each and every day, but you've got no clue. You see all his creation. You see all his works. Yeah, you walk past him every day, no clue. Maybe you're just like the scribes in the crowd were this day 2,000 years ago. They've got Jesus standing right in front of them. And yet they can't see him for any more than this guy from Nazareth. Maybe that's you. You really don't know him or recognize him as a treasure at all. Listen, here's my encouragement to you. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And know him then as the treasure that he really is. Because he is a treasure. See, this Bible is ultimately all one book. It starts with God, the creator of heaven and the earth, how God made all things, including you and I. He made man and woman. He he knitted us together in our mother's womb. He made us ultimately for him to find our identity 
and our joy and our purpose in him. And yet we don't get long into the story, like three pages, before humankind decides, hey, I'm going to exchange all of that for you. I don't want you. I just want what you've made. I'm not interested in you. I want what you've made. I want this world to be all about me. I'm interested in me, actually, not you. So the way I'm going to cover that up in my life is I'm going to pretend you don't even exist. Thank you. And that's what sin is all about. That's the nature of sin. It's rejecting God for who he is. It's saying, I ain't interested in you. I'm taking your creation. I'm doing my thing, but I'm not looking for you at all. And yet, my friends, in that, we simply don't know who we're messing with. God is holy and righteous. And so he can't then just say, and doesn't then just say, oh, well, never mind, okay, on your way. In his perfection, he understands, and in his justice, he understands that our rebellion against him must be punished. And because of that, in our sin, we're cut off from him. We're removed from the garden. We're removed from his premise. We cannot just spend time with God as if our sin is no big deal. The Bible is clear that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. You might not like that. You might not like gravity. But if we all jump off a cliff together, you're going to find it's true. We're all going to stand and give an account in our lives before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What are we going to say? He's called us to love him with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength. He's called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we didn't. We haven't. We failed that many, many times. You know what the scoreboard is for Jesus? 100%. If we're going to get into heaven, 100% pass mark is the only way. We can't do it. But that's why God sent his son. Because Jesus can do it. And Jesus did do it. Jesus himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God could have left us in our sin. He could have left us facing impending judgment and hell. And that would have been legitimate because he's told us in his word what we're meant to do. But he didn't. He so loved the world that he said, Hey, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son for you. A son that gladly came. Because the son looked on, he loved us too. And Jesus Christ was his name. The very man that's standing here, in front of the scribes and the crowds, explaining to them who he is, three days later would find himself hanging on a cross, Not in tragedy, but in triumph. Because Jesus himself said that that was what he always came to do. He came as a ransom for many. He came to hang on a cross and experience God's righteous, holy wrath for our sin in that moment. And made a way in that moment that if we would put our faith in him, then our sin and its consequences would be apportioned to him and his sinlessness would be wrapped around us. His righteousness would be wrapped around us. That's the great exchange. That's the scandal of grace. Christianity isn't about what you can do for Jesus. Do you you realize that? Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you and bowing your knee to him and saying, yeah, you know what? I've got nothing but you've got everything. Save me. And when you do that, what you find then is you discover this treasure. And you're so affected by the treasure, you're so besotted with the treasure, that you want to live for him. Not because it's duty, but because it's the greatest delight and honor of your life. Because you have to. Because you can't help yourself. Because he's the treasure. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus or recognize him as your treasure, then put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior today. Know what it is then to be forgiven and redeemed and adopted into the family of God. Know what it is to know with assurance that heaven is your home. 
And you'll start to treasure him. You'll start to treasure him. And then there's another group. And they're these guys. Those who know Jesus to be the treasure. And yet in reality, have grown cold to him. I say, you know, it's true. You know everything I've said is true. You believe it. You nod the way through it because you think, I I believe this is true. But you nod with your head and not your heart. Because in your head, this is true. Jesus is the greatest treasure. But in your heart, you've grown cold to him. He's in your house. He's in your room. But your greatest treasure? Uh, yeah. Facebook seems pretty attractive right now. I like football. You could really do with a girlfriend. I need money. Oh, yes, that's right. Jesus is my greatest treasure. In your head. But not your heart. And my friends, I'd have to say, I understand that. I've seen that in people's lives for the last 16 years that I've had the privilege of being a pastor and I've experienced it in my life as well many times. Where in reality, I know Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. In my mind, I know it to be true, but my heart, there are many competing treasures. And it can feel then that I should read my Bible, I should pray, I should worship him because because I just should. rather than wanting to skip to him and run to him, amazed that I get to be with him at all. Two very, two different experiences. You know, maybe you're here today and that's you. You know him to be the treasure, the greatest treasure. And yet in reality, you have grown cold to him. Do you want to know why that happens? It's not complicated. We think it's complicated. That's the lie of the devil. It's not complicated. Nearly every time when we've grown cold to the Lord, it's not because the Lord has changed. He can never change. He will never change. It's because we've changed. We've got distracted. We've moved away. And before you know it, that treasure doesn't sparkle like it once did in my life. Here's the counsel then of the Saviour himself. Listen, Sovereign Grace, listen to these words. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You want to know why we grow cold to that treasure? It's because, quite simply, my friends, we get distracted. And then instead of being plugged into the vine, spending time with the vine, spending time with the life giver, we're doing Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and sending out emails and just working all the time. Oh, group, I'm too busy for that church. Oh, we got a lot on. we got a few parties on. And then a week becomes a month and a month becomes six months. And before you know it, you're like, man, I, I, I just don't feel like, I'm just not feeling it with Jesus. I don't understand it. I'm so sad. You know why that happens? Because you disobeyed that scripture. You started to think that you could do it without him. And then you feel dry and empty. And it's happened to me many times. And I'd have to say the heat in Australia is unforgiving on this issue. Just like it is in your garden. Now I was doing some gardening the other week. I don't do it very often. don't really like it very much. 
But I did some, and here's what I found in Australia. When you cut any piece of grass or a flower, whatever it be, off, and you just leave it out in the sun, within about 10 minutes, that thing is dead, dead, dead and gone. It is unforgiving. I think Sydney, Australia is like that spiritually as well. There are so many flashing lights pulling us in and getting our attention that if we cut ourselves off from that vine, we're dead within minutes, minimally within days. My friends, if you've grown cold into the treasure, I submit to you it's not because the treasure's gone anywhere, not because the treasure's changed. It's just we've stopped spending time with him. So I urge you, spend time with him. Be with him. Let me reintroduce you to him today. Let me wrestle your heart back to him. And here's what you'll find. You start spending time with him again in the word and you realize, man, I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten how amazing he is. And you start praying to him and start to realize, man, he, he answers my prayers. And you start worshiping him and realize, man, Jesus is far greater than I'd, I'd just forgotten so many of these things. This is incredible. You'll find that treasure starts to sparkle again. And you will want for nothing else. Don't let Jesus stand at the door of your life like that couple in Birmingham, just walking past him every day, but feeling nothing towards it. Clueless. Embrace him for who he is. Spend time with him. And you then, I assure you, will want for nothing else because he is the greatest treasure ever found. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the greatest treasure of all. You are. And yet, Lord, our hearts are prone to wonder. Our hearts get distracted. Our hearts move away. Sometimes we are clueless and we simply cannot see it. Lord, I do pray in this moment for all those that don't know you as Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord, would you pull back the veil that is on their eyes? Would you give them the gift of sight? And even now then, would they come to you in repentance and put their faith in you as your Lord and Savior? Lord, would they respond to you as King of kings and Lord of lords, not out of duty, but out of delight? I Lord, for all those that have been prone to wonder that when I talked about individuals who have grown cold to the treasure, they instantly knew, that's me. Oh, Holy Spirit, I, I recognize your word this morning. I recognize your availing of yourself to these dear folk. Lord, do they know then in this moment that you are a God who is abounding in grace? You're not there then tutting or wagging your fingers to where we've been. You're simply patiently waiting for our return. So Lord, for all those that have grown cold, would they return today? Would they lose themselves in wonder afresh? Would you be their vision? Would they sit with you and you alone? And in you, would they find the sum again of all they'd ever hoped for? The greatest treasure of all. Amen.